and welcome to the I Am Woman Project, where every week we have deep thought-provoking and interesting conversations with thought leaders, change instigators, rule breakers and creative minds who think differently, sparking creativity and inspiration. Our special guests on our show cover a variety of topics just for you, and they share their personal stories to inspire, motivate and empower you, our listener. The I Am Woman podcast is produced for your enjoyment and show notes are found at www.catherineplano.com. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or iTunes. All links are in the show notes. Now let's get into the show. I'm curious, do you want to know how to achieve lasting positive transformation, abundance and empower your life? If you are not happy with where you are today and the repeating patterns that represent in your life over and over again, then a radical shift is what's required to help you make changes and live your life more on purpose. All you need to do is sign up to our email list and you will receive an online module on how to create radical paradigm shifts. You can get it completely for free when you sign up to our email list at katherineplano.com. And as a valued subscriber, you are also going to get exclusive content that's only available to our email subscribers, where we will have members-only events, free access to online masterclasses, VIP and discount tickets to all events. Only available for people on our email list, we offer bonus content with more advanced tips that are exclusive just for our email subscribers. There is an amazing stuff available for you only if you sign up to the email list and you can do that by going to katherineplano.com and sign up on the homepage. As always, this week we have a super, super amazing woman for you, Celeste Headley. Celeste is an award-winning journalist, professional speaker and author of Heard Mentally and We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter. In her 20-year career in public radio, she has been the executive producer of On Second Thought at Georgia Public Radio and anchored programs including Tell Me More, Talk of the Nation, All Things Considered, and Weekend Edition. She also served as a co-host of the national morning news show, The Takeaway from PRI and WNYC, and anchored presidential coverage in 2012 for PBS World Channel. Celeste's TEDx talk, sharing 10 ways to have a better conversation, has over 17 million total views to date. In addition, she serves as an advisory board member for Procrown.org. As an NPR host and journalist, Celeste has interviewed hundreds of people from all walks of life. Through her work, she has learned the true power of conversation and its ability to both bridge gaps or deepen wounds. In a time when conversations are often minimized to a few words in a text message and lack of meaningful communication and dialogue abounds. Celeste sheds a much needed light on the lost and essential art of conversation. Celeste is an expert in human nature, reclaiming common humanity and finding well-being and frequently provided insights and commentary on what is good for all humans and what is bad for us, focusing the best research in neuro and social science to increase understanding of how we relate with one another and can work together in beneficial ways in our workplaces, neighborhoods, communities and homes. It's now time to listen to this one very inspirational human being. Enjoy. Well, today I am super excited. We have Celeste Headley all the way from Washington, D.C. Welcome to I Am Woman Project. Thanks, Franks, for having me. 
Oh, thank you so much. I'm so excited to have you on the show. And we were just sharing or comparing the different time zones and whether it's winter in Washington and obviously really hot and summery in Melbourne. Yeah, that's right. So we're having different experiences right now. Absolutely. So Celeste, we always love to ask a woman of inspiration with her unique story. So tell us your story. What inspired you to do what you do today? Um, well, you know, I, I have two separate careers. I have, I'm a both a, I'm a trained as a professional opera singer. That's what my college degrees are in. And I, for 20 years have been a, a journalist and host or presenter with national public radio, with pub, the public radio system in the United States, um, which is the version, our ver- American version of the BBC. So the reason I mention all that is because my entire life for the past 20 or 30 years has been bound up in communication of one kind another of, of another either over the radio through journalism or through music and and the thing that inspired me was that I just uh, began to notice how badly communication was degrading how often not only how often does communication go wrong around me at least, but also how often people are avoiding it altogether, thinking that they'll be happy if they don't have conversations or if they avoid hanging out with other people. And and that's what start, started me researching and trying to figure out not only what was going wrong and why we were doing this, but the effects it might have and how we could fix it. Mm. So talk us through what have you discovered in your research? Because I do think, I think communication is key to any form of relationship. So talk us through some of the things that you, your findings in your research. Well, I mean, one of the first things I think we all have to remember is that, you know, communication, yeah, it's very, very key. But good communication requires really good listening, right? Always. And the problem is, is that human beings as a species are not great listeners. That has nothing to do with the technology we carry around all the time. It has nothing to do with how we were educated or any of those other variables. It's just that homo sapiens are not by nature good listeners. And you know, there are species that are. There are species um, whose survival depends on their listening skills, right? Mm. We're not one of them. A baby comes out of the womb and their survival depends on how loud they are and how good they are and effective they are at attracting the attention of an adult. So we're not built to be great listeners. It turns out science tells us that listening is actually qu- can be quite exhausting when you're listening in, a, in an engaged way, when you're focused. Um, it actually burns a trace amount of glucose, just so you know it does, in fact, burn energy. Um, so listening is difficult, and it's always going to be difficult for you to when you're in a conversation. And that means you're going to have to work at it the same way that you have to go to the gym or exercise every day. You're going to have to be working on your listening skills every day. Mm, it's so true. And I think that's a really good point you make, because I think that it doesn't matter what, I mean, in my role as a coach, I have to, and it's taken me a lot of practice, but I still catch myself every now and then, what am I going to make for tea? Do I have enough uh, <laughs> minced meat in the fridge? Do I have blah, blah, blah? So I'll start going through a shopping list in my mind and I'm like, what am I doing? I've got to be present. I've got to stop. So I, <laughs> yeah. do, I go from listening to not listening to listening to not listening. So what would be some of the findings with how do we become a better listener? Well, I mean, there's a number of things that you can do. And and I, I would say that some of the good news is, is that it is self-rewarding. Um, there's lots of data showing that hearing other people's stories is not only inherently pleasurable, um, but it's also there was a research that just came out, in fact, I think just like a couple months ago that shows that your enjoyment of a conversation, for example, uh, goes up as, as the amount of time that you spend talking goes down. So the less you talk in a conversation, the better, the bigger the impact it is on you in terms of the benefits to your, your mental health and your emotional health. So that's kind of some good news that if you can get yourself to listen in an engaged way, you will reap some really great benefits. You know, the most effective way to increase your empathy, for example, is by listening to other people's perspectives and experiences. But I think that another thing to keep in mind, if you're try- having to try to force yourself to, to focus in on other people is that, um, one of the biggest dangers for human thinking is the fact that we're the only species that 
uh, is subject to confirmation bias. You know what confirmation bias is? It's uh, when you believe something and someone shows you evidence that it's not true and that only makes you believe it harder, right? Mm. So we're not we're not particularly rational thinkers. We are emotional thinkers and it can cause all kinds of problems because it, it means we end up making the wrong decision a lot. But one of the fail safes on that, the thing that saves us in the end is that we're such good communicators biologically and evolutionarily. We are designed to converse with other people. And so by hearing other people's inputs, by really listening to them, you can prevent yourself from making mistakes. You can, that's, that's how you prevent yourself from falling into the trap of confirmation bias and irrational decisions is by getting other people's input. Oh, I love that. I, it resonates with me. And it just reminds me, um, many moons ago, one of my teachers said, you have two ears and one mouth. Two ears. So 80% of the time you should be listening. 20% of the time you should be asking questions. And yeah. I, and it's true because when I, I actually have my coaching sessions, I always say I come out learning something from their stories. And it's almost like, you know, they're holding up a mirror. It's for me to learn. And I think that that deeper part of our mind thrives on stories. Oh, absolutely. And you know, it has been a very short, I mean, a blip on, on the timeline of history that we have used text as a way to learn or to communicate. I mean, if, if, if the modern Homo sapiens has been around for uh, 300,000 years, maybe, um, it's a pretty, just a few hundred of those years that we've actually communicated or learned through text. And it's funny because I was asking a couple neuroscientists and a sociologist, I asked them all the same question, which was, you know, do you think at some point text will replace um, or equal the voice in terms of effectiveness for communication? And they said, yeah, maybe within about five to 10,000 years, it's possible. So wow. there's, yeah, there's just no replacement. Every bit of our biology and our evolution has designed us to be just the best conversationalists on the planet. That's how we survived and thrived because, you know, we communicate so much through the sound of our voice, through the way that our body is moving. We're the only species that blushes. So, I mean, these are all ways that we communicate to people sometimes without even making a sound. That's what we're designed to do. Mm. And I think, Celeste, with that, it depends on this, your state of mind. When you're reading a text or an email, you can misinterpret the tone depending yeah. on what you're experiencing. And what do you think, what kind of impact does that have on our growth, do you think? Well, I, I mean, I think there's a lot of real dangers um, with overuse, not use of email. Email is fine under uh, many circumstances, but overuse of email. So um, the dangers inherent are in it. And, and let me just point to the, the biggest one to my mind. And that is that um, text uh, leads us to dehumanize one another. There's really good research showing that in fact, the way that one human being recognizes another person as a human is first and foremost through the sound of their voice. So they did a study that came out in 2017 that showed that if I read an opinion in any format, newspaper, book, email, an opinion that I disagree with, I'm more likely to think that person uh, disagrees because they're stupid and they don't understand the core concepts. If I hear them say that exact same opinion in their own voice, I'm more likely to think they disagree because they have different experiences and perspectives. That means that when I hear their voice, something inside me says, oh, this is another human being. Mm -hmm. And I, I need, yeah, I need to treat them as another person, another human being who has a different story than mine and a different experience than mine. And that goes away in text, which means that when we use email, they've shown in a number of studies that in email, you are less likely to, to negotiate. You're less likely to cooperate. You are more likely to escalate conflict. So you want to use email really judiciously, right? You, it's totally okay to use email to send attachments, to send lists, right? Like here's the number of things we need to get done, to delegate authority, to send an agenda for a work meeting. But anytime you're sending an email that has any kind of nuance to it, uh, a chances for misunderstanding, anything that needs explanation, email is probably not your best format. 
Wow. And, well, two things come to mind. I, I, I get what you're saying because that's happened to me when I've read it and I thought, well, they obviously had their own you know, th- thoughts around that. But when you actually see them uh, speak in person, you, there's a connection. It comes from the heart. Very different, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the other thing that comes to mind is I know that a lot of our listeners are either entrepreneurs or uh, you know, women or men in business. And therefore, I know for um, – uh, as a way to reach out to clients, a lot of the stuff is done through email. When you yeah. think about it, when really they should be picking up the phone and actually having a conversation like we used to do probably 20 years ago. Oh, it's so true. And and uh, just to, to give you some research to back that up, number one, they've done studies in which they've they tried to see how persuasive people are face-to-face as opposed to through email. And they've done this also um, in the difference between voice-to-voice and through email, etc. And uh, um, the majority of people predicted they would be at their most persuasive when they sent an email because they are mistaking their own convenience for the other person's convenience. What's convenient to you is to shoot off an email, but that doesn't mean it's convenient for the other person. It doesn't mean it's actually effective communication. Um, where when they finished this this one particular study I'm referring to, people were something like 70, 60 to 70 percent persuasive face to face and zero percent persuasive over email. Statistically speaking, zero percent actually succeeded in getting the person to do to fill out like a, a 10 question survey. Mm. Um, and and over and over modern customer service uh, surveys are finding that customers prefer businesses where someone picks up the phone there it's maybe seem more efficient to a business to try to automate all of that customer service but when something goes wrong a lot of us really hate calling in and not being able to speak to a live person that automated system just can't problem solve the way a real person can so you know, if you're going to have good customer service, you ju- you just have to pick up the phone. Mm. So that from a customer, I totally agree. What about from a sales perspective? Because I know that many moves ago, I'm talking about 25 years ago, I was one of those people where I had to pick up the phone and make that sales call. And there was always a level of resistance because yeah. of probably fear of rejection. And I, I know there's probably a lot of people out there that probably don't um, probably experience the same thing. And so their way is they might send an email as a way, a form of introduction, uh, as a soft approach, and then they do the call. But I don't know about you, but I get those phone calls almost daily trying to sell me something and I don't even give them a chance because it's like, yeah. I didn't give you permission to give me a call and, and I, I don't, I'm not interested without even hearing them out. So what are your, what would be some, that piece of advice that you'd like to leave for our listeners today? Those that are in business, those that need to communicate and find ways of getting customers, what would be the best way? You know, um, let me compare this to my experience as a journalist who's constantly taking pitches from PR people because in a way it's the same challenge, right? Um, They're trying to sell me their story just the way that someone else is trying to sell me their product or their service. And the most annoying thing is the people who pitch me things that if they had just done a quick Google search of me, they would know I I don't cover and I'm not interested in, right? Mm. I mean, it's the people who I work for NPR and maybe I'm covering the Midwest and they send me some pitch about a new handbag factory in, in China. Like it's just an incredible waste of my time. And to my mind, this is them saving themselves one minute of work on their end of that quick Google search and then wasting three minutes of my time getting them off the phone. So I get pretty resentful about it. Mm. So I I think that the the main thing is that, yes, people, you cannot fight the fact that people um, right now are irritated by phone calls. I don't, it's not right. It's wrongheaded, (laughs) but they, they are, and they're less likely to pick up the phone. So I think it's okay to send that email as an introductory, uh, thing. Mm. But I think in the end, you'll find it's way more efficient to have the targeted informed pitch than it is to do a scatter shot. It's the scatter shots. It's the just constant bombardment with sales that is ticking people off. Mm. Um, the, the constant, I mean, we, you know how it is. We're surrounded by ads everywhere we look. We can't even read a news article without constantly 
ads or go on our social media and ads. And in our minds, we lump all of that together as just someone trying to sell us something. Yeah. So if you're trying to separate yourself out, you gotta, you have to be judicious. Yeah. Yeah. So how does one do that? Because it's true. It's it's one of those things we are bombarded. I mean, everywhere, whether it's social media, uh, emails, phone calls. Um, yeah. Yeah. So probably one of the most effective pitches I ever got was the first line said something like, um, you, uh, you're, you're following such and such story. I think it was gun violence in the South. I have the perfect expert for you. And right. that's what the first line was. They knew exactly what I, they had identified in a need that I had. And they said, I can fix this need. And I think when it comes to sales, I, when I say be judicious, you need to identify that that person has a need and that you can fill that need. And that's going to be an effective uh, use of their time. Then they'll feel as though you're not – they still may not buy it. There's no guarantee. But at least they may – they probably will not feel as though you're just completely, you know, wasting yeah. their time. Absolutely. The, thank you for sharing that, by the way. The other thing that comes to mind with communication is what – from your research – why do people hold back from standing in their truth and speaking their truth? Uh, give me an example. What do you mean? So, for example, if uh, somebody says, look, I don't agree with you, and I see this in a lot in because uh, I do a lot of corporate work, so I find a lot of leaders will hold back. They might be sitting in a meeting and or even having a conversation with another leader, and you could see it from their physiology, they're actually not on board with an idea or a project. And yet, instead of sharing their ideas or maybe their insights and how we could probably do it differently, they hold back. So this is uh, this is difficult, and I'll explain why. Um, most of the time, they're holding back for a really good reason. So we have a ton of research that shows, in business meetings especially, women are punished for um, criticizing or uh, sort of being the naysayer, right? Mm. Uh, when a man brings up an issue or a problem, they're more likely to be someone who's sort of a take charge kind of guy. When a woman does it, they're seen as a nag and a complainer. And it, it, it almost is irrespective of their rank, um, almost. Mm. I mean, in other words, they, they may be a manager, they may be a secretary, and they'll still be judged harshly for that. Um, so there, in, in a way, if you're a female, you're kind of fighting the stereotypes that are against you. And I can understand why you might not speak up. On the other hand, the, one of the only ways we can change this is by not participating in it anymore. And that's scary. Mm, yeah. <laughs> that's very scary because you, you will be judged not only by men but by other women. Yeah. <laughs> women are just as likely to say harsh things about other women who speak up in meetings. People, women and men both say that, that women talk more even though that's completely not true. Men talk more at work than women. But that that's not the stereotype, is it? So – at some point, we, we're going to have to decide that we're not going to do this anymore, we as women. Now, I'm not putting this all on women. When it comes to um, ending sexism, that's almost entirely on the guys. Like the solution to that is almost entirely male. They have to fix it. But um, we are part of that stereotype and on both ends. So I think you have to kind of be strategic. And there are ways to bring up these issues that are assertive um, without being aggressive. Mm. So I think that sometimes if you hold that stuff in for too long, when it does finally come out, it can be like the bursting of a valve. And, and that's when there's a danger of it coming off as aggressive because there's frustration behind it. Um, so I would say when you're trying to bring these things up in a, in a meeting, you have to obviously make sure that it's worth it. Make sure that you're you're not choosing something trivial to bring up. But if it really is an issue, say, hey, listen, let's talk about this because I see a potential problem and I'd love to be able to, to, to stave it off before it happens. So can we guard against blah? 
how do we make sure that such and such doesn't happen? Um, if, if you put it in this thing, uh, if you put it in the light of, hey, let's problem solve this together, um, it, it might be something that everyone actually joins on the team with instead of seeing it as an attack on someone else's idea. I love that. So when you're saying to be more strategic, you're actually um, saying to kind of plan it out in your head so that it's really how we deliver the information and that it comes across as more of a collaboration rather than you standing on your box saying this is how it should be done. Right, exactly. And, and frankly, I would say this, I would, I'd give the same advice to men. The only thing is that the, the, the stakes are higher for women than they are for men. We're more likely to get punished if we do it wrong. So um, it is true for everyone that you, when you're bringing up problems, you should make sure you're reminding everyone that the reason you're bringing up a problem is because you all have the same goal. You all want that project to succeed. You all want everything to go well. And you see this possible issue that might prevent everybody from reaching that goal. Um, as long as you can keep things from becoming tribal or competitive at that table and just continue to remind everyone that you're all on the same team, you're probably going to be a lot more effective. Mm. So true. You know, I was thinking that I had this conversation months ago that I see this quite often play out and, and it's what you were talking about that women, say an opportunity comes up in a corporate environment, a leadership role, the men jump at it and the women kind of sit back and sort of ponder over it and think about it and, and then, you know, there's always they're holding themselves back instead yeah. of putting themselves forward. And it's always about there's this, I don't know whether it's self-worth or lack of confidence, but as you were speaking through um, the difference, the, how we're, I guess, how we're interpreted when we stand up and communicate, it, it kind of makes sense why women hold themselves back so much. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, we get, we kind of get it on both ears, right? I mean, we're, we're damned if we do and damned if we don't. Um, and it, it can be quite um, demoralizing when you put yourself out for those leadership uh, opportunities over and over and you don't get them. Mm -hmm. And men are much more likely to get those leadership opportunities than women. That's just, that's just the statistics. That's just the way things are. Hopefully not for long. I'm hoping that's mm -hmm. changing. Um, so yeah, it's the odds are stacked against us. And the flip side of that is that, you know, there's also a lot of corporations really focus on equality and they have to have the same amount of female leaders as the same amount as male leaders. And you quite a lot of the times I've actually um, sat with some of the, the leadership teams and they actually now feel like, I don't know if I got this role because I'm a woman or whether I actually got this role because of my skills. And there's that that goes around as well. I think so too. I mean, it, it gets very complicated. And it's, you know, it's funny that all of these things that you're talking about are all the reasons why it's better that we don't leave any of these things to email because it's just too complicated and nuanced. We need to see people's faces when we're talking about these things. Mm. Um, and, and also don't ever mistake a, a meeting for a conversation because they're two different things. Mm -hmm. A meeting is a meeting and you should keep meetings as short as you possibly can. Conversations are mutual exchanges of ideas and those you should let them breathe. Um, but yeah, these kind of, all this nuance, all these things are going on can be sorted out and, and understood much more easily when you're actually hearing somebody's voice. You know, if I'm explaining something to you, even now when we're, we're only hearing each other's voices, if I'm trying to explain something to you and you don't understand, I will get it, right? Mm. I'll hear it in your voice. You'll go, hmm, or you'll make noises that let me know that you're not quite with me on it. There's no, in an email that goes away, I have no idea if you understood or you didn't understand. So, you know, it becomes a, to a, a much more difficult conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And that goes back to, you know, I always say I look for what people are not telling me. So from a face-to-face -face point of view, when we're having a conversation, I look from the, the non-verbal communication. And as you're saying, like we're not seeing each other right now, but it's, it's once again, it's that intuitive that, that kind of feeling you have towards one another. You, know, you kind of feel like maybe they're not on board or maybe they're not agreeing with me or, yeah, so I get that. Yeah. 
So Celeste, what kind of advice would you, because you're a very, you're, I look at you as very much a powerhouse, a powerful force of nature. You've, you've uh, you know, uh, from opera to journalist, a great combination. I love the whole communication piece. What kind of advice would you like to give a woman um, who would like to embark on a new career or even completely change their, their life? You know, it's interesting. The very first TEDx talk I ever gave was on the subject of finding the right career. Um, and it, that was called, I think, find, don't find a job, find a mission or something like that. But let me give you this kind of the same advice I included in there. And that is, number one, don't jump, uh, don't jump off a cliff. Um, so the thing is, is that it's really difficult to figure out what it is that you love and are passionate about and are good at um, in theory, by reading about another career, about seeing by seeing someone else doing it, it's really difficult to tell whether that's actually a good fit for you until you've tried it. And rather than quitting the job that you're in and leaping into another one before you're sure if it's right for you, I would suggest dabbling. Volunteer. Let's say that I, you wanted to become a graphic designer. Well, fine. There's tons of community groups, um, community theaters, and all kind of other things that would absolutely could use a graphic designer. Go and try it out. Spend a few hours a week doing that and see if it's something that you're good at and that you love. But, you know, don't burn all your bridges quite yet until you're sure because it may take a little while to try out different things. And the other thing that's great about, you know, uh, dabbling is that it kind of frees you up to do anything, even crazy stuff, things that you might think are just really outside your wheelhouse and you never know and, and I'm a good example because I am trained through very expensive college educations to be an opera singer. And I never had any idea I was going to be in journalism. The only reason I ended up in this field is because I tried it. I tried it first as, an, as a weekend radio announcer and it ended up being the right thing for me. But I would never have picked it. No, no um, career identification quiz, those things that your advisors gave you when you were in school, that they never identified me as a journalist. I, the only way I came about it was because I did all kinds of things and this was one of them and it ended up being the right fit. So I would say dabble first. Oh, I love the double. And I was going to ask you, how did you go that transition from being an opera singer to a journalist? But you just answered that question. So thank you for that. So Celeste, what's one, one of your greatest lessons learned along your journey? Um, I think, I mean, I, I hate to sound like every other person that's ever, you know, attained a level of success, but I think the biggest lesson is to embrace your failures um, and to understand that, you know, like Thomas Edison said, I didn't find one way to make a light bulb. I found 398 ways that didn't work. Or I'm, mm. I'm paraphrasing horribly, right? But um, the, the, the thing for me is like, it's it, it kind of goes along with that idea of dabbling. And that's in terms of let yourself screw up. Give yourself the freedom to try a whole bunch of different things. Say yes to stuff. Um, as long as you're not saying yes to like a 10-year contract, try stuff out. And, and be okay if it's not okay. Let mm. yourself fail. Let yourself fall. Let yourself do things badly. It's going to make you uh, better at what it is that you ultimately do. But it's also going to make you way more appreciative of those people who do things well. I mean, for example, my manager who does all my logistics and you know, all the travel and all those other contracts and keeps track of all those things. I had to do that by myself for you know a year and a half. And I was terrible at it. Terrible. Terrible. Mm. And so now I can absolutely appreciate her. And I, I treasure her <laughs> because she's so good at it that it really helps by, by uh, embracing my own failure. I can actually absolutely celebrate someone else's success. Mm, I love that. And I think that's, I, do, I love doing that too. I actually, um, I always say with our team that we work with our strengths because I think that we thrive when we work with our strengths because I don't like all the, the whole data thing, spreadsheets. That's just not my, yeah. my, not my default position. Definitely not. I have to really spend a lot of time on it. And so I'd rather somebody else do it. And uh, yeah, it just ha frees me up to do the things that I love to do. 
Oh, absolutely. But then when you get those cool little charts, those kind of really interesting charts and data that they send you and you're like, wow, they're great at this. You could really appreciate someone who's good at that. Yeah, absolutely. it's, 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 it's great. Yeah, absolutely. So, Celeste, another question we love to ask our woman of inspiration is pain points. We believe everyone has pain points. What would be one of your pain points and how do you move forward from your pain point? So I have a real problem uh, with overbooking and overscheduling and um, I just, I, I, I don't know, I just, I can't get away from this idea that I should be constantly productive and constantly improving. Um, and that can be a very destructive cycle mm. if you never let yourself turn off the power and just sort of do nothing productive and and nothing that's self-improving. I mean, you need that time. Both the human brain and the human body are not meant to be on all the time. They're meant to pulse between between energy and idleness. And that's my pain point is that I, I really struggle with that. Um, and in order for me to move on, I have to sort of schedule in time to do nothing. And it, it, maybe it seems counterproductive to use a schedule to stop scheduling myself, <laughs> but um, it actually has worked out really well. As I began to separate my time into half hour bursts, I sort of started keeping, I just spent a month or two keeping track of what I did every day in half hour increments. And it really made me aware of how little time I gave myself to relax. Um, yeah, so that's that's that has actually counterintuitively helped me oh I'm, I'm 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 hearing you loud and clear i'm resonating with that one i think i just over over uh oh overwork is probably i'm a bit of a workaholic i think and i don't have very clear boundaries and i find myself that i get burnt out very quickly so i too actually have time on my calendar and it's it makes a, such a big difference because it's like everyone knows that you're shutting down on that day and then you can get things done for you. And I think that's really important, especially these days where everything's going fast and you're bombarded by, you know, from left, right and centre with communication, whether it's email, social media, whatever that may be. I think it's really important to shut off and slow down. And, you know, I honestly think I think this is this is something we all everybody, every adult is is. Uh, prone to in the working world at least but I, I kind of think women are more prone to it than everyone else because we're the gender that's expected to multitask we're the gender that is expected to not shut off when we get home but instead take up look uh, the the statistics tell us that women still do the majority of household chores whether there's children in the house or or not mm -hmm. so I think women are especially prone to this never sort of letting uh letting go and, and kind of just being lazy. Maybe we need to reevaluate the word lazy. <laughs> but Maybe lazy's gotten too bad a rap. Yeah, I, but you know, I think it's it's there's a guilt. I, I know for me it's guilt. I feel guilt. If I'm actually spending time, I mean, I've become better at it because I'm also, you know, I was one of those women that was running my business, being a mother, running the house until I had a full-on burnout experience in New York that really – and. As hard as that was, I actually say that's a gift because it's allowed me to slow down without feeling guilty. But guilt is mm. the thing that didn't allow me to spend time for me. Yeah, mm. exactly. Yeah. And shame. Yes. You know, shame. Women are shamed if their house is dirty or their kids are have a dirty face. We're shamed if, you know, and, and it gets worse at work because, there, you know, we know from research that women are also way more likely to be expected to nurture at work. We're the ones that are expected to remember birthdays, for example. We're the ones who are expected to organize parties and all of the social, anything social that occurs at work, women are disproportionately expected to do that. So, you know, in a way, we're kind of there's a lot of societal pressure that leads to this guilt if we we're not doing something. You have this long to-do list sitting there while while you do nothing. Like mm. that's that's going to weigh on you. Absolutely, I know. And it does take a bit of um, practice because I know when I first practiced spending time for self, um, I was sitting there going, I feel like there's this, you know, because I was this on this treadmill constantly that I felt there's always I had to do something. Yeah. Yeah. So it does take a little bit of practice. 
So the it other does. question I'd love to ask is, because uh, we do have a lot of listeners uh, that are either in business or entrepreneurs or leaders within their own rights, uh, what do you think is one of the reasons people fail to succeed in business? Because we hear quite often that people are lucky to succeed within the first 12 months. So most organisations or you know, um, SMEs you know, close down within the first 12 months. What do you think would be a reason? Um. I mean, besides the fact that, you know, you may not have read the market right, I would imagine that's that's a that's one big problem uh, that you may not be fulfilling a need that enough people have. Um, But I think also, I mean, not to to go back on my particular area of expertise, but I think a big reason for failure is bad communication, bad communication with your staff. Um, which would mean that you're not getting the great ideas. Maybe you hire a really talented staff, but lack of communication is preventing you from actually gathering in the new ideas and the innovations that you could be taking advantage of. Um, it could be bad communication with your suppliers. It could be bad communication with your customers. You know, I mean, the vast number of returns of products are items that there's nothing wrong with. And and returns cost trillions of dollars every year to businesses and the vast I think it's over 80% of them there was nothing wrong with the product it just had to deal with the fact that the the customer had no idea how to use it right Mm. so even in terms of how well we communicate how to make use of our products or our services we're not always great at that so I would think that if you were going to to increase the success of your business the one of the most impactful ways that you can do that is just to increase communication skills of everybody, everybody. You know, there's, there's, um, well, the, the book that sort of gathers all the information is called The Wisdom of Crowds, but there's been a longstanding field of research looking into the human hive mind. Um, and it turns out that if you, let's say that you were, you wanted to put together an ad hoc committee to come up with whatever the next product you were going to do. And so, one of your strategies was to gather the 10 smartest engineers you could, the people who'd actually be building or designing it, right? I mean, that would be a, a, that would be a typical strategy. The other strategy would just be to gather 10 random people from your company and poll them, right? So it turns out the research shows that the second group where you include pretty much everyone, even people who have no knowledge or experience in the field they're talking about, that one's going to make the smarter decision. When you gather a group of diverse minds who are um, thinking independently, that group is smarter than the brightest, most educated minds you can get on the whole. So I think when it comes down to communication and innovation and making smart choices, you have to make use of the entire team and find ways to gather the wisdom of an entire company. The, the biggest mistakes corporations make, in fact, the most expensive mistakes corporations make, are the ones in which either the CEO decided by themselves or decided only with the input of their executive team. Wow, that's so true. That uh, I'm just writing down some notes here because I see that play out. Communication in any organization, especially in large corporations, is one of those things that is the pain point. And yeah. and I find that there's always a lack of communication, not the right form of communication, or how people communicate. They'll tell you the what and how we're going to do it, but then don't go into the why. And we know now from a lot of research, the why is that driver that allows us to lean into uh, a movement. So it really does, uh, and I love the whole idea of the the diverse minds. I mean, we do that here with my team when we actually get together and we strategically go, we're going to have a brainstorming session. Everyone's got to come in with an idea and put it on paper. And then we walk in and we've actually sit around, this is what the idea around blah, blah, blah. So this is how we actually come together um, for a solution. So I love that. I don't know how you do it, but you know, the most effective way to do that is if once they've gotten it on paper, you, you just hand all of the papers up to one person so that the ideas are submitted anonymously because that means people are less likely to rely on what they think about the person or whatever unconscious biases they may have about a particular person and just evaluate the idea objectively. 
Mm, I love that. So what kind of advice would you give a large organization? Because that is a pain point is communication. And I don't think, uh, I think that it's more like you're saying there's the leadership team at the top that make the decisions and then they filter that information down and it doesn't, it's not always successfully filtered down. But what would be, because not everyone can practice that whole, get the whole team together, especially when they've got hundreds and thousands of employees. What would be a, a piece of advice for those people? use polls (laughs) honestly use polls um because as it turns out when you poll your employees on making specific decisions when they and they have done it over and over and over again homogenous groups spend this is you know there's an organizational theorist named james march and he said one of my favorite things on this particular topic he said groups that are 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 similar to each other. They spend too much time exploiting and not enough time exploring. So if you just send out a poll, because that gathers in all the things that you need, it's a diverse pool of people. They're acting independently and anonymously. Um, You can get an incredibly good decision. What area should we expand into next? What region of the country should we expand into next? Send it out as a poll to your entire company. You will get a more accurate and better decision. And this this is not just me saying crazy stuff. This has been tested over and over and over. And and there's also really good evidence that shows um, that one thing that gets in the way of this exchange of information is actually a pretty deep-rooted hostility um, between management and subordinates. So if you if you uh, take that out of the way and just allow people to put in a vote, you're actually going to get better decisions than you would if you you put you started having a bunch of complicated meetings um, where biases uh, come into play and where people may not actually be listening to one another. Just poll them. Mm, I love that. Absolutely. So the other question we love to ask is uh, who has been, especially with you, uh, who, only because I just see you as an amazing, inspirational, and as I said, a powerhouse. So who's been your greatest influence? Um, Probably my grandfather. My grandfather was a classical composer. Um, He was my favorite person when I was a, a little kid, and I just adored him. But he also... I mean, he fought in the face of a great deal of adversity. You may you may have heard that the United States has a small bit of a racism problem. Mm, just a little bit. <laughs> he, he, he was a black man born in 1895, just after the Civil War here, who was writing classical music, which was not acceptable mm. for black Americans to do. Um, so he started out with every odd stacked against him with, with, you know, statistically speaking, no chance to succeed. But he just, I mean, he just opened his heart and poured it out onto the page. He, he studied and worked at it. He didn't wait for innate talent to do it for him. He worked hard his whole life. And here's another thing that really influenced me. You know, his workroom obviously was in his own house. He had a room in the back of his house where his piano was and all of his his um, music paper, et cetera, et cetera. And every single day when it was time for him to go in and work on music, he would get dressed in a three-piece suit with wingtip shoes and suspenders um, and go down into his workroom because that's the kind of respect he showed to his work every day. Wow. And it had a huge influence on me, yeah. Oh, I've got goosebumps. That's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. So, Celeste, if you were to look back at, uh, and uh, give some advice to your younger self. What piece of advice would you give yourself? Um, I would probably say stop asking people to, to give it to you. And I think this is especially true of women, but everybody, we're just waiting for someone else to give us permission. Um, and instead of just taking it, doing it yourself, <laughs> just do it. Someone else won't let you do it, then go do it yourself. And I wish I had done that a really long time ago. Mm, I love that. And I think that we can all resonate with that one. Absolutely. I think sometimes we are just waiting to get that little nudge or somebody say, it's okay for you to do it. Yeah, Mm. exactly. You don't need them to tell you that. No. The other thing, as we start wrapping up the show, we always love to ask our woman of inspiration to pick one word that best describes her personal brand. What would be that one word for you? Uh, probably listening. Yeah, 
Yeah. Probably listening. Of yeah. course. I love that. The other thing as we wrap up the show, we always love to ask our woman of inspiration to pick three shiny golden nuggets to leave for our listeners. So what would be those three shiny golden nuggets that you would like to leave for our listeners today? Um, the first one would be uh, that listening does more for you than it does for the other person. So when you're sitting there and you, you feel like you, you don't want to listen to what someone else is saying and you're thinking about this in terms of you listening to them as something you're doing for them, flip the script and instead remember that you listening to them is giving you more than it's giving them. That's the first thing. The second thing I would say is don't put your phone down, put it away. A research has shown that even the presence uh, of a cell phone um, the visual sight of some in, in, in someone's peripheral vision of a cell phone uh, makes the other person less likely to trust you, less likely to like you, um, more likely to think you're unempathetic just by seeing it there on the table. So if you're one of those people that sets your phone down on the on the table as you sit down to lunch with a friend, stop doing that. Don't put it down. Put it away. And the last thing I would say is stop trying to educate everybody. Um and don't go into your conversations not to educate, not to teach someone else something, but to learn from them. Oh, I love that. And I, I think that with the phone, it's funny, I remember with my husband, we were sitting down for breakfast one day, and we were looking around and having all, all these people having breakfast together on their phones. Yeah. And I, I, it's like, how sad. We've, what's happened to us? We've lost our way and we can't have commu- conversations anymore. Everyone's having conversations on phones. It's crazy. I yeah, like and it's not particularly good for us either. <laughs> it's not good. I mean, think about it this way. If you were a zookeeper and you were trying to figure out the, the most ideal enclosure for a human being, would you ever leave that human being alone? No, no. <laughs> because when we're in solitary confinement, we go crazy. Yeah. Like literally loneliness degrades your internal organs. It's really bad for you. So the fact that we're doing this thing that is horrible for us and endangers our physical health as well as mental and emotional health, it's it's not it's not great. <laughs> yeah, no wonder there's an increase in anxiety and depression. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Celeste, where would be the best place for our listeners to find you? I think the website's the easiest place. It's the one-stop shop, which is celesteheadley.com. Yeah, and we'll have that in the show notes. Celeste, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. You are awesome. That's all I can say, just awesome. I was listening to you and I'm like pumped. Um, I've got goosebumps and I just I love what you do. Keep doing what you're doing and I'm sure our listeners will too. Thank you so very much for your time and your energy. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. That brings us to the end of another episode. I hope you enjoyed the show as it is my mission to reach out and inspire as many individuals like you. And one of the best ways to help us achieve this goal is by giving us a good review on iTunes. It's easy and it only takes about 10 seconds. And when you do, please be sure to let us know by sending us an email to collect your special gift where you have a choice from six guided meditations or an ebook to soothe your soul. Now, if you have any questions or special guests that you would like to hear from, please send us an email to support at katherineplano.com.au and we will get right back to you. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook at Catherine Plano. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Until next week, please take care of yourself.